to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Russell Norman is the Executive Director of Greenpeace Aotearoa, a former Green Party co-leader and a two-term MP. He's never short of an opinion. He's got a, a sort of Aussie swagger and the impatience of a man on a mission. And he was a guest panellist, a guest panellist at the Climate and Business Conference last week and summed up the feeling of the event when he said, we need to stop talking about it and just do it. So, Russell, thanks for joining us. Is that a fair summary of what you said, a brief summary? Yeah, it's what, certainly one of the things I said, and I just say um, certainly true. I, I think many people would understand your impatience, but you have seen from the inside how hard it is to change. I mean, you've been in Parliament, you've led a political party, and this previous government has achieved quite a lot. If you just sort of rattle through some of the achievements, the main achievements, particularly in climate, uh, Zero Carbon Act, very good, long overdue, but, but good. Mandatory reporting on climate risks from business. Are uh, you starting to see uh, the inclusion of climate impacts and RMA plans uh, in municipal authorities? Those three things are quite big achievements, aren't they? So what, what's making you so impatient for change, Russell? Uh, those three things are okay achievements, but they're not that big um, in terms of actually cutting emissions. Uh, so the Zero Carbon Act by itself does nothing. Um, it's... Um, sets up a climate commission with no power. Uh, It makes chief executives not responsible ultimately for increasing emissions. Um, It removes the the rights of NGOs to use judicial review against the government to force the government to change, or it tries to. I guess that'll be tested in the courts later. Um, I think the financial disclosure is helpful um, I think putting climate change back into the RMA is helpful, um, but it'll take some time for it to have an effect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I'd kind of phrase it a bit differently. I'd say there's two things the last term the government did that were quite helpful. Um, one was the cap on synthetic nitrogen fertiliser that comes into play mid-next year because um, that actually cuts emissions pretty quickly. Um, and the other, which is more globally relevant, which is the the ban on issuing new permits for oil and gas exploration, um, which is just about restricting supply side for the global fossil fuel industry, which for various reasons is very, very important globally. Um, but in terms of domestic policy, there's only one policy that's really going to make a significant difference in the sh- short term, which is the nitrogen cap. And why is that? Can you explain that? Uh, Sure. I mean, New Zealand's had a dramatic increase in synthetic nitrogen fertiliser use, 620% since um, 1990. Uh, And synthetic nitrogen fertiliser, just when you apply it, it has um, big emissions, nitrous oxide emissions. So just the application of it uh, produces more emissions than domestic aviation pre-COVID. Um, But the more important effect of um, fertiliser and nitrogen fertiliser is it drives the intensification of industrial dairy. 
Um, and of course, agriculture is half of our emissions, and it is the industrial dairy sector that is a key driver in there. Um, so if you take synthetic nitrogen fertiliser out of the system, um, you de-intensify the system and push it towards regenerative and away from an industrial model. So it's just uh, putting a cap on it right from the get-go um, makes a significant difference to decreasing emissions. I want to get to this next government in a minute, but just continuing the reflection on this past government, do you have some sympathy for the government in that its hands were tied? It all, you know, it had a three-way coalition, particularly with New Zealand First, which had quite a profound effect. It had a, a, a kind of a drag effect, if you think about, for instance, the attempt to get... Uh, EVs incentivised uh, amongst importers and they even had industry support for that but it was New Zealand First that held them back Yeah, um, I mean so just so just to give the context, I mean the, the fourth um, biennial report that New Zealand did to the UNFCCC which was released at the end of last year, um, which accounted for all policy initiatives up to that point so that included the Zero Carbon Act and various other things, not the nitrogen um, cap that came in in 2020. Um, that showed that New Zealand's uh, gross emissions were only going to decline 7% um, from mm. 2017 through to 2030. So just like the Zero Carbon Act, I mean, people like to talk about it, but let's look at the actual numbers, um, you know, because the climate doesn't really care about good intentions. Um, <laughs> it's emissions that count, right? And so gross emissions under the so-called Zero Carbon Act were barely moving. Um, was 7% decline 2017 to 2030. And then on top of that, if you look at net emissions, they were increasing by 16%. Um, and this gov uh, New Zealand governments over many years have used net emissions as their target rather than gross. Um, and so gross emissions under the Zero Carbon Act were projected to increase by 16%. Uh, so when I say it was all a failure, I think the numbers totally support that. I mean, it Hmm. Who cares about legislation? Who cares about good intentions? Who cares about emoting all the rest of it? What you say on an international stage, if your actual policies in real life produce a big increase in net emissions and a very marginal decline in gross emissions. So that's just the first thing, like no excuses, right? They, that's what they did. And they're just the facts. Um, then, then there's the question of was New Zealand first part of the problem, right? Which was your question. So just to circle back to that, I think on if you think about this, you know, there's basically only two games in town in emissions in New Zealand. One is agriculture, and the other is transport. And I think on transport, you're right. I think New Zealand first, to some extent, were a handbrake um, when you looked at some of the fuel efficiency standards that are missing the support for electrification. On the other hand, if you look at the rail investment, which was very large by New Zealand standards. Um, that was all New Zealand first driving the investment in rail. Mm -hmm. Labor supported it, as did the Greens, but it, most of it came out of the Provincial Growth Fund. Um, so that was um, quite good, um, in fact. Um, but then if you look at the New Zealand upgrade, which Labor promoted and were very much responsible for at the beginning of 2020, $5 billion on new motorways, I think it was $300 million on active transport. That was the Labor Party, not mm. New Zealand first for that. Mm. And then when it comes to agriculture, which is half of New Zealand's emissions, um, it wasn't New Zealand first that stopped agriculture going into the emissions trading scheme because they'd signed up to it in their coalition deal. They didn't like it, but they agreed to it. The problem was Labor. Uh, Labor blocked agriculture going into the emissions trading scheme. So, yeah, you can blame New Zealand first for bits of it, but not for the most of it. David Parker speaking at the conference last week, he outlined uh, it was a very long talk he gave and uh, it probably wasn't the most exciting talk, I have to say, but there was some detail in it that you know, is probably worth mentioning. Um, 
bringing forward the, and, and this not not particularly new, but bringing forward the renewable generation target twenty thirty. Sorry, hundred percent renewable electricity generation. A uh, hundred million commitment for exploring the Onslow Dam concept, which hopefully we're going to get to. I think Keith Turner's got to be on the show in a couple of weeks talking about that. Um, it's a new one for me. A requirement for. Electric-only buses on anything that's government-funded. So where a government, where the central government's contributing to buying buses for public transport, the the, the expectation is they would be electrified. Uh, and a seventy million transition fund for industrial heat shifting. I, I guess mostly from sort of coal-fired boil, boilers and and such for the likes of Fonterra. So some commitments there. Uh, are, are they enough to reverse? this trend in both net and gross emissions that you've mentioned, Russell? Uh, by themselves, they're certainly not. Um, but there are some things that you could connect them to. So um, if you think about the electrification of transport um, requires um, the electricity grid to change in various ways. We don't need to get it a lot more renewable, though obviously 100% is great and I'm all for that. But, you know, we're not far off 90 already. Um, mm. So the, the, the electricity grid... At, at the moment, isn't a key driver of emissions. It's one small, you know, it's a, a small part of it. It's significant. We should do it. But the more important and exciting thing is the electrification of transport with renewable electricity. Um, so if we can do that bit of it, that will make a significant difference. Transport's about 20% of emissions. Um, so if you can deal with that, then that will um, help a lot. Uh, and so that's part of the Onslow thing and the various other parts around the electricity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's worth me reminding people that transport's responsible for 37% of Auckland's emissions, right? So we don't, you know, in Auckland, we can't rely on agriculture, you know, addressing agriculture to fix that. It's, it's, it's transport all the way. It's a big part of it, yeah. I mean, no doubt transport is, I mean, nationally, it's a big part of the big part of it. Mm. Um, I, mm. and I agree with that. And it's not just about electrification of the, of the kind of personal vehicle fleet, though that's part of it. It's also about active transport. It's got to build the cycle networks out and we've got to do it fast. Um, got to make walking safe. And then, of course, electric mass transit. Uh, so there's a bunch of pieces of that transport puzzle, which I think are all doable and will make a significant difference um, over time to the to the emissions coming out of New Zealand, but in, mm. like you say, in Auckland in particular. And then mm. you've got, but that doesn't really, so that's, you know, that, that will, that's uh, the, um, the, the projects that you identified will help with that, um, but they have to be connected with the broader transport um, project and the decarbonising transport at 20% of our national emissions. Um, mm. I mean, would you support, as one thing to get people into active transport, but would you support, you know, sort of carrot stuff, would you support stick stuff, you know, like what, I mean, in London they've had congestion charging for, what, nearly 12 years now. Is that the kind of thing that has to happen, a sort of a disincentive for people to be jumping in their cars? I think it's part of the mix, as long as you're confident that people have choices, um, so, you know, like you, you can't really say to people, we're going to force you out of your car if we don't have a decent public transport network. Um, so I think it is part of the mission, um, but we also need to build the efficient mass transit system that we so desperately need. Mm. And, you know, we're starting that. I mean, the CRL is underway. Um, and that was a long-term campaign by a whole bunch of people, and I was part of that. I mean, it, you know, it took ages to get the CRL. It's a decade later than it should have been. Mm. But it is being built now.
when you look at the just to go back to your question the other thing was about industrial heat um industrial heat is a relatively small part of the overall mixture but nonetheless important and so if you can electrify those industrial heat processes both mm. for the big ones and the small ones um then i think that also is part of the solution uh and and so some of the initiatives the government's taking will help with that but obviously the big the two big ones are agriculture and transport. I've got to say, you know, someone said it's the cow in the room, isn't it? Tell us about your thoughts on emissions trading scheme for agriculture because they've been given a bit of a pass, haven't they? Yes. Or they, not, depending who you talk to. Well, I mean, the facts are quite straightforward. They're not paying. Um, <laughs> they are not. We are. Uh, so the taxpayers got to cover for their emissions now. So if you reflect back to when the emissions trading scheme was brought in 2008, um, agriculture was due to come in in 2013, so in two elections' time. Of course, uh, John Key got in and it never came. Um, agriculture stayed out. Then this government uh, last year uh, said agriculture is going to come in in two elections' time, which sounded uh, very familiar. Um, so 2025, they said they're given them to with a review at 2022. Um, so once again, the kind of strategy of predatory delay, which has been Federated Farmers and Dairy NZ strategy now for very successful strategy for over a decade, um, that strategy of predatory delay has worked again. Um, and, you know, Jacinda Dern, great climate warrior, rolled to the dairy sector um, and completely capitulated to them and said they could have all these extra years to come up with a voluntary scheme. Voluntary schemes, like, they're, they're just, they don't work, right? Why would you? Like, if you, a rational response from the dairy sector is to go, we should invest in lobbying because that works. Like, look, it's worked every time now for 12 years. We should not spend serious money to decarbonise um, because why would you? Um, so every time a government capitulates to a lobbying effort, as government, New Zealand governments have done over and over, um, it sends the wrong signals to the sector. So, yeah, dairy's not in the ETS. There's a review 2022 of the voluntary scheme, um, but they've given them till 2025. Russell, you know, one of the uh, arguments against including agriculture in the ETS, and it's a good argument, is that the farming sector really is the backbone of our export-led economy, right? And we don't want to be poor. A poor country is a country that really struggles to have environmental action. You don't see many poor countries that have really... Uh, taken on the mantle of fixing their environment and so if we you know just bear with me so the argument would go if we if we cripple our ag sector with high costs that cost has to be passed on through pricing has to be passed on to our export customers and to our domestic customers so effectively the price of food is going to go up is that a, is that a sustainable model, model for new zealand well, I mean, uh, to work backwards, I mean, the price of food is does have to go up. I mean, I think, you know, there's no question. I mean, you know, we need people to have decent wages and income, but food is too cheap, no question about that. But kind of putting that to one side, um, it, what's, the, what's, the, what's the long-term export strategy of the primary sector? I mean, that's the, that's the kind of question you're getting at. And so is, the, is it to produce uh, cheap commodity industrial-style food? And I, I, which is what we do now with milk powder, right? We're the world's biggest exporter of milk powder. And so, you know, when you look at the value add of a company like Fonterra compared to the value add of a company like Danone, um, it's, we're, we're miles behind, 
right, in terms of what is the value we're adding to all this milk powder. So the strategy of pursuing this cheap commodity strategy isn't working very well currently because we're not adding much value to all of this milk. The second question is what's going to happen in the future? Like on the one hand, you're seeing this rise of um, the sustainability food, so the people who are looking for food of provenance, natural food, quote-unquote, um, and then at the other end, you're looking at the rise of plant-based food and synthetic food, right? And so this market share of industrial food, which we're currently sitting in at the moment, is being eaten away at both ends. So plant-based food's going to eat away at dairy, plant-based milk, everyone's seeing it. If you haven't seen it in the supermarket, you haven't been looking. Mm. Um, and synthetic food's going to do the same thing. And at the other end, natural food's going to come at it. Um, so Danone has said, we're moving big into regenerative agriculture. We're going to move towards supporting farmers to transition. We're going to be buying out of regenerative agriculture producers. That's the pathway to success, I would argue, in terms of the global uh, food market. This pathway we're sitting in at the moment is uh, the poorest pathway. Uh, you're being very measured today, um, which is all very good, but I'm interested in, in change, how you manage change. So you've been, you work for a protest organisation, you've thrown yourself in front of ships and uh, lofted yourself up buildings and and I guess you, you've made a career out of uh, being on the protest side of the equation. Do you think that protest is an effective way to get change? If you think about um, an organisation like Greenpeace, like, so, you know, we spend um, a good chunk of our time lobbying. We spend a good chunk of our time writing policy papers. Um, but what distinguishes Greenpeace is we also do things like peaceful civil disobedience. Um, we also do protests of different kinds. Um, and we spend a lot of time um, uh, raising the issue in terms of public profile, whether that's on the internet more generally or just through particular events. Um, all of those things are valid, like there are many different players in an ecosystem of change. That's how change happens. Um, so all of those different activities count. But when you look at the big changes that have happened in our society in the past, whether you look at nuclear-free New Zealand, whether you look at women's right to vote, the anti-apartheid movement, I mean, you name it, uh, union rights, health and safety at the workplace, there's basically an unlimited, uh, <laughs> you can talk about it for, forever, about how peaceful civil disobedience is one of the core dimensions to producing change. And, and it was, I mean, surprisingly, Rod Orham in the first panel I was on asked people whether they were going to do peaceful civil disobedience, whether it was justified over climate change. And Kirk Hope from Business New Zealand put his hand up, which... Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I've, known, I've known Kirk for ages since he was at the Bankers Association before, so that surprised me. But anyway, um, but that's a key part of how change happens is peaceful civil disobedience. Um and so, yeah, you've got to be willing to, that, that's, that's part of the toolkit, an essential part of the toolkit. Mm. Where do you get your energy for that? Because, um, you know, that, that is a, it, it, it's a high pressure, high stakes uh, kind of role that you lead. I'm interested to, to know where your enthusiasm for the task comes from. Are you tempted to hang up the spurs at any point and have a nice time with your partner and child? Um. Look, I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, you know, because uh, I have this thing like we're part of nature, not separate from it, right? Like in one of the problems with um, 
the civilization and the enlightenment project that I dearly love is our separation from nature, right? Or, or our conception that we're separate from nature is problematic, right? But let's go, okay, that's not true. We are part of nature, but we're a conscious part of nature, right? So we have, for better or worse, developed consciousness and awareness of ourselves and our surroundings in a way that no other animals have and certainly not plants, right? Even though we're all brothers and sisters because we are literally all connected in the same family of life but mm. how particular little part of life has developed this extraordinary consciousness about it so isn't it interesting to think can the conscious part of nature which we are understand the impact it's having and change its course or will it simply behave like another lemming another animal that simply overpopulates and then goes through a collapse right which is the what you would expect to happen to any other animal in our situation so I just think it's a really, it's, a, it's an incredible case study that we are the only ones we know are going through in the whole universe of a conscious part of the living world, understanding its place in that living world in changing course. Is that possible? That's what interests me, is can I be part of a consciousness across all of these humans that actually changes course? Is that possible? And, and I, I think that's a fascinating experiment, and we are in the process of learning um, whether that can happen right now. So, so much of that change uh, is, is around the short-term, long-term nexus, isn't it, of what will benefit me in the short-term may not benefit me in the long-term, but it's very hard to cross that chasm do you have examples of where long term has been accepted even at a short term cost maybe even in the life of your time at greenpeace have there been wins where you think yeah actually uh, we've managed to affect the consciousness to get that kind of change hey, look i mean I, it's, so I, I i can talk about two recent the two recent examples are the ones we worked on really closely which i happen to think were very important right which i've already mentioned <laughs> Um, you know, the oil and gas exploration ban, the ban on new permits um, and the nitrogen cap. These two things are very significant policies and were the result of um, very effective campaigning work. Um, like, it, it, honestly, these, the, like these things are, <laughs> we picked these things on purpose because we think they were key nexus points. If we can, if we can restrict the supply of new oil and gas globally, it creates real problems for the industry. And if we allow it, then most of the sunk costs for oil and gas exploration and production is at the beginning. It's the exploration phase, right? Mm -hmm. So once you've sunk all the cost into the thing, um, it's very very hard to stop them because it's cheap to produce whatever the price of oil and gas is, right? Anyway, so the, the point is, is that those were key nexus points where we were able to have an inflection point in history. Um, but you only have to go back to others. I mean, I think about the struggle to get lead out of petrol, which was also this enormous, epic global struggle against the oil and gas, so the oil mm. industry. Um, mm -hmm. You think about the, the ozone layer battle, right? An incredible battle um, where you had to take on chemical companies. And we took too long with that battle, which is why when I go outside now, I have to cover all my kids in sunscreen and we all wear hats because the companies <laughs> were able to delay action. And generations in the future are going to think the same about us. They're going to think, Jesus, those people that came before us delayed. They did eventually do it, but it took so long. Look at the thing that they let loose, just like mm -hmm. 
when I go out now, I think the same about the generations had to stop the chemical companies from releasing um, ozone-destroying chemicals. So those things have happened, and we can do them again, but this is the biggest one. Like, there's nothing of this scale before. The oil industry created, you know, the access to fossil fuels created our civilization. You know, we've built our civilization on this thing, and yet we have to get off it. It's crazy. It is. A, it's a massive shift, isn't it? I don't think people quite have... I mean, I know myself, I haven't quite appreciated the scale of change, but also quite exciting. We'll, we'll come back to that in a sec. I just want to, um, regarding oil and gas, you were in the Supreme Court this week, I think, uh, looking at opposing mining in the South Taranaki Bight. Is that right? Yeah, it's not really oil and gas, though. That's iron sands. It's it's There's this big global expansion of the seabed mining all around the world, and New Zealand's one of the flashpoints. Um, so we're trying to stop this TTR application. We've, it's gone through all the layers of courts. This is the last... Um, attempt for them to get it through but it's happening everywhere it's like the la- one of the new frontiers of, of biodiversity destruction is um destroying the benthos um yeah let's so go back to that um thank you for the update we'll, we'll keep an eye on that um y- you know this um theory of change you talk about uh, of of managing i suppose a, a, a consciousness um what's your feeling about new zealand as a political beast, has the centre moved towards being more green? And do you think that Labour will have a mandate, an expectation, I think, from the electorate to actually walk the talk now? Yeah, I mean, if you think about um, the transition, because, you know, I worked with Clark and Cullen under the last Labour government, um, and... You know, Cullen used to ridicule us because of our position on climate change and and rail and all. They used to call us what did he call us? Train spotters. Um, because <laughs> we wanted to promote um, trains, and he said, "I'm doing the biggest highway building project since the since colonisation." Is what he proudly used to say to us. Um, and so, I do think, even though you can still see some of that with Labour and the New Zealand upgrade, where they spent most of the money on new motorways, um, is is a kind of hangover of that. But you can see it's changing. Um, only, you know, if only in, say, their commitment to light rail, trying to get light rail in Auckland, like in spite of all their botch-ups, it looks like they're going to keep trying to do that project, right, which is great. And the CRL is the same. I mean, Labor were not at all supportive, but they've slowly moved on the city rail link and all of that kind of stuff. So they are moving, there's no question. And, and Adurn is, is light years ahead of Clark um, in terms of, consciousness about climate change she still hasn't translated it into actual government policy yet and this is her chance to do that so i do think it's moved but it's the the whole society's moved i mean my father used to be a contract engineer on coal mines in australia you know my brother worked in the gas industry um you know our whole family was brought up on fossil fuels you know um but i you know that's changing you know like even in australia it's all changing so um, I, I do think our consciousness about climate change is moving. It's just taken a while, and, it, and it's not surprising it's taken a while. We built our whole civilization on fossil fuels. It's taking a while, and it needs to speed up, doesn't it? I mean, I, I was talking with someone at the conference about how we all read the Lorax when we were kids, and yet, you know, things have got worse, not better. Mm. Uh, what, what can we do, Russell, to increase the pressure on the government to speed up its action on climate change and, um, you know, put action next to that rhetoric? My, my current approach is to give them a chance th- to to demonstrate that without the handbrake of New Zealand first and without that excuse not to do anything that they're going to 
um, actually take action in a way that they haven't up to now, or they have to some extent, but not enough, nearly enough. Um, so, um, so I'm kind of like my approach at the moment, and I would encourage people is to be positive with the government and supportive and say, look, you guys have said you're going to do this. This is your moment, you know. Um, and I do think that they've got a, you know, a six-month window essentially to demonstrate that they plan to change course um, because in the first term, you know, they didn't achieve much in terms of actual policy that will actually cut emissions. Now, the government would say if you had Shaw here, he'd go, oh, we set up our framework, blah, blah, but um, and so we're going to see whether that comes to, you know, the, we're going to see whether that del delivers, right? What are the budgets the Climate uh, Commission delivers? Does the government adopt the budgets? Does it introduce policy to meet the budgets? Um, they are all the things that are going to be decided in the next little while. And, and I thought um, Shaw's position moved at the conference where he admitted that they hadn't actually achieved a lot in terms of actually cutting emissions. They'd spent all this time on the framework and all that kind of stuff mm. um, instead of actually doing policy that would cut emissions. So... I, so, yeah, my approach is uh, be supportive of the government and tell them they've got a mandate and that they can do it. Um, and if they don't deliver within the next six months, then it's just like we just have to take them on because this is the moment. This is the moment. We haven't even talked about oceans, but we'll do that another day. Um, Russell Norman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.